to Between the Times, a podcast of Christ Church Presbyterian in Charleston, South Carolina. This is episode 51, and I'm here again with our pastors, John Payne and Ross Hodges. And so today, what we wanted to discuss is a topic that's become very popular, not just within the PCA, but within the conservative wing of evangelicalism in general. And it's the concept or topic of what may be called cultural transformation, where the idea is the primary job of the church is to work in cultures in the hopes of transforming them for the sake of the gospel. So I guess we'll start with the first basic question. Is the primary mission of the church to transform the culture that it's in? Yeah, I would say, what does that even mean? <laughs> Transform the culture. Like, what? Nobody ever really puts definition on that. Uh, I can conceive of Christ returning and uh, judging the nations, and uh, you know, burning up the the world. Second Peter, chapter one, and. Uh, and creating the new heavens and the new earth. That's a transformation in my mind. <laughs> but what does it mean for a church to come into a community and to transform it? Is well, that overreaching language? <laughs> so we can put a little meat on the bone for this. Is it the primary mission of the church to essentially Christianize the culture or to create a Christian culture right now in the world? The mission of the church is to make disciples, okay. not to Christianize a culture. Uh, we don't see the apostles trying to Christianize uh, their first century Greco-Roman culture. Uh, we see them busy preaching the gospel from the whole counsel of God, uh, planting churches, uh, uh, appointing elders, shepherding the flock, and being a witness of the gospel. They are, as our friend Mike Horton likes to talk about, uh, churches are embassies of grace. Mm -hmm. They are citizens, we are citizens of uh, another a better country, uh, citizens of another kingdom, uh, while we are citizens of the kingdoms of this world as well, our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of heaven, and, and the church is an embassy of grace where we, we witness to the, the, the grace and truth of, of God. And so, uh, no, our, the mission of the church is not to Christianize a culture. It's not to transform the culture. I think that is overreaching language, it's unhelpful language. I think it, it guilts people into thinking they're sort of never doing enough. And uh, while that may be true, that we're never doing enough, uh, that we shouldn't see that as, as the mission of the church. The language of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is that which is teaching Christians or God's people how to live in the midst of their culture, not how to transform it. So in the Old Testament, you get a great example of this with the exiles in Babylon. Uh, there is specific instruction for the exiles to be good citizens in Babylon, even though it's a hostile culture, it, it's, it's a conquering culture, it is not their original culture. But they're to be good citizens, they're to settle down, they're to plant and grow gardens, and gardens raise families, and that sort of thing. Um, but there's, no, there's nothing about transforming Babylon into Israel or in that, that sort of thing. Um, and, and then likewise in the New Testament, the, the, the great amount of language we have uh, for how to live as a Christian is, is the understanding of how to live within the culture that God has placed you. Uh, there's nothing about changing it ultimately as a goal or as a mission. There, there is the idea that you will be a light in the world. You know, you get Philippians 2, your light's in the darkness. 
um, you, you get uh, Matthew 5, that you will be salt, a preserving influence in a decaying culture, and you'll be light, you know, a, a, yes. an illuminating influence in a dark culture. But those things are happening as you are living as a Christian in the midst of this world, and they, uh, they are happening as a result of pursuing the kingdom of God and not pursuing the kingdom of this earth to become the kingdom of God. And what's interesting, I think, with this whole concept of transformationalism, as it were, is there's this idea that you must accommodate the culture, that you must be like the culture in order to reach the culture, which is why we see so many uh, churches today, uh, uh, particularly mega churches, but all kinds of churches, that are looking a lot like the world and not using the kind of biblical language that we have heard in preaching and teaching in churches in years gone by. Uh, now we have more of the world's language coming into the pulpit to seek to to bring change and to draw people in and so forth. Well, and I think what's happening there is people are, churches and people are falling prey to what Jesus is warning against in Matthew 5 with the passage about salt and light, mm. where he says, if salt loses its saltiness, what is it good for? And then, yes. if, you know, it, it, and you don't have a lamp that's lit just so you can put it under a basket. In other words, if you're not actually different, if you don't actually have a preserving influence on that which is decaying, that you're going to be like it and you're going to just add to it. And then the same thing with the light is, if you're not different, if you're not different than the darkness, you're not shining in it. Mm -hmm. And if you're not different uh, in the way that you speak and the way that you look and the, the message that you bring, uh, you're not different than the culture. And mm -hmm. you're certainly not therefore going to transform it. You're being transformed by it. So also an emphasis on or making a priority of transforming the culture as the mission of the church while it sounds very spiritual and exciting, um, it leads to all kinds of of, of uh, misunderstandings of the mission of the church, really, as as that which is making disciples and planting churches. And how have we seen, Gabe, I'll throw this out at, uh, to you, how have we seen this emphasis on transforming the culture lead to uh, liberalism in the 20th century? So many examples of this, and so for those who probably remember their kind of uh, U.S. history, you all probably remember that time period where we had prohibition laws, and the prohibition laws didn't just kind of come out of a vacuum. It came out of an expectation that uh, there were individuals and churches that wanted to essentially make a Christianized nation, in essence, mm -hmm. and one of the beliefs was that there are certain characteristics and ethical things that are consistent with that and so prohibition was meant to see as one basic way in which the culture can be in effect made more morally pure and Christianized and we know the effect of that immediately after the amendment was passed we saw revolt <laughs> essentially yeah. Yeah. and we know all kind of the economic consequences of that uh, if you kind of keep going in terms of American history I think a great case study uh, involves what today is kind of called the liberal wing of the African-American church. And the liberal wing of the African-American church uh, essentially works in the position of, of basically saying that we need to make the gospel more pertinent to the actual immediate needs of African-Americans. And so what that meant at the time, uh, this is talking about the 50s and 60s, was the fight for civil rights. 
and the fight for equal rights for women as well as for um, black people in the South, the removing of Jim Crow South. And so while we will pretty much all say that uh, much needed to be done to change some of the cultural issues that went on with Jim Crow South mm -hmm. and all the other ramifications of it, what eventually happened is that you began to confuse the actual preaching of the gospel and discipling Christians with the political ends of the civil rights movement. And so one of the unfortunate things that has happened is that there's a certain wing of the church that appears to be, it has to feel it's no different than kind of a social political organization. Mm. Now, right now it's popular to make fun of the sort of Southern Baptist churches that are kind of connected with Donald Trump in a very political uh, right wing sort of way. Mm -hmm. And that is the same error that occurred 40 years ago, where in that case, it felt to be morally righteous to be for opposing Jim Crow South. But the essence is the same thing. You're trying to use uh, the church itself to serve the political ends of various movements. And what that does, kind of by necessity, is that if your target end is to essentially remove social injustices and things of that nature, you kind of by force and kind of by practical implication have to downplay important Christian focused doctrine. So that means instead of saying that atonement, conversion, regeneration, and discipleship are the main thing, you have to say things like social ethics, uh, fighting social injustice become at the same level. And once that shift occurs, it's usually hard to reverse it because you're once you change what you perceive the mission of churches, that means you change the nature of discipleship, mm -hmm. you change the nature of preaching, you change how Christians view each other, and the change is how Christians view the world. Mm -hmm. So it has many tentacles, and the African-American liberal wing of the church is one example of that, but it occurs all over the place in the United States. Oh, yeah, it's right. happening in white evangelicalism big time uh, right now as well, and all kinds mm -hmm. of social justice issues. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, what is interesting to me is I've learned more and more about the social justice emphases of particularly white evangelical churches, some of which are in our own denomination, is that they will say that this is the gospel, hmm. that, that fighting for social justice issues from the pulpits, with our pens, on our blogs, in our mission of the church is the gospel, hmm. uh, that we are the gospel and that we are called as um, it's kind of incarnational theology we are called as Christians to fight for these things and what better way to mobilize that fight than mm -hmm. in the church well what is so poisonous about this is that the things you mentioned before uh, the atonement uh, the person and work of Jesus Christ mm -hmm. uh, the, the the preaching of the whole counsel of God gets um, gets eclipsed yeah. by this uh, or 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 the volume gets turned up so loud on the social justice issues that the uh, the, the, the the whole counsel of God is drowned out in in all of the uh, the loudness on these other issues yeah. and so you become kind of a one tune band as, as a church and that one tune is not the person and work of Christ it's an issue right. which you call the gospel yeah it's the people who and I think we should pause here and say that you know we we believe that folks doing this by and large have really good intentions they they want to they want to see the kingdom of god advance they want to help the poor and the needy and 
they want to be merciful and compassionate, and, and those are wonderful things. And the uh, the saying, I think it's St. Francis of Assisi, that preach the gospel and if, if necessary, use words, or right. when necessary, use words, that becomes sort of the, you know, the, the battle cry, as it were, for these things. Um, and the problem with that, though, is it's just not biblical. It, it, you don't... Uh, you don't f solve these problems by eclipsing, as you were saying, Christ and the atonement and the centrality of the preached gospel. Yeah. The kingdom doesn't advance through silent good works. No, no, no. The kingdom advances <laughs> through the preaching of the gospel, yes. and good works come from those yes. who are transformed by the gospel. So that's an important point, isn't it, here, that good works, uh, serving the poor, um, uh, as believers working for social justice as individual Christians, that's the fruit of the mission of the church and not the root of the mission. Yes. So, so when we say, what is the mission of the church? We don't say to transform the culture. We say it's to make disciples mm -hmm. through the preaching of the gospel and word and sacrament, shepherding care of the flock. Yes. And pray for them to love each other within the flock. And that from that, as we spread out and scattered to our various vocations, then we are salt and light in the spheres God's given to us. And, and one person may be led to, to work at the homeless shelter, for instance. Mm -hmm. Another person may be led to help uh, by uh, singing songs to the kids at the cancer hospital. You know, another group may be working for helping dig wells overseas or you know, what, ha what have you. There may be there are a thousand things we could, we could mention here about the different ways that Christians serve in their communities and love their neighbors. And I right? think this is one of those things where probably a good bit of light needs to be shined perhaps on the reality that this is what Christians do. So a lot of the talk that kind of comes today is giving a suggestion that Christians are just only preaching the gospel. They're not actually doing things in the community. Right. And I think a, you know, it's not a great case study because it just happened, but consider Hurricane Harvey that recently occurred. If you look at the volunteers who actually assisted, those are Christians taking their own money, their mm -hmm. own time, mm -hmm. and in some cases risking their lives to rescue people out of flooding. That is, in essence, what it means to have good works proceeding from Christians. Yes. Yes. And it occurs all over the place uh, in American society as we see it today, is that Christians are doing a lot of things that are not publicized. Yes. And the reality is that is part of that salt-preserving yes. concept. You don't just, you know, you don't look at food that's being preserved and stare at the salt. <laughs> that's not your job. The yes. point is that the salt is doing its job, yes. and you kind of see the effects of it. Yes. And so that's true for Hurricane Harvey. It's also true for a lot of the medical doctors who do a lot of pro bono work because they yeah. feel the conviction that this is what they're called to do. There's a lot of Christians who work in soup kitchens uh, basically unknown to multiple people. There's a lot of people working right. at pregnancy centers. They are yeah. working to rescue children that have been abandoned, yeah. to stop people from uh, going through abortions, adopting children. So yeah. all these things are occurring because of what God is doing in the hearts of Christians. It's occurring now. Yeah. So the kind of idea that we need to transform the culture is kind of giving the impression at times that that's not actually happening. The reality is that we're, there's a lot of things happening underneath the surface that individual Christians are doing because God is leading individual people to do very important things beneath the surface. Yes, yes, and it's so important, too, to remember the uh, very important distinction, and that is the difference between 
the great commission and the great commandment. Mm -hmm. Right. So the great uh, commission is to go into all the world and make disciples mm -hmm. uh, through the means of grace, through baptism, Lord's Supper, preaching the whole counsel of God, mm -hmm. uh, planning churches, of course, as the, the main practical way to do that. Uh, the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's that second part of the great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, that is a fruit of the mission. Mm -hmm. That is not the mission itself. Now, you can't, you, you, don't, you don't divorce them. It's not a hard divorce, but right. you must distinguish between the two. Because, yeah, going out as a church and making disciples is loving your neighbor. Yes. Mm -hmm. But me helping my neighbor move a pile of sticks from one end of the yard to the other is not the Great Commission. Mm -hmm. The Great Commission isn't, let's go into a city and bring shalom and peace to the city in some nebulous way. And must also be stated that the only way, so this is something we talked about today in Bible study, this is one of the practical uses of the law. This is why the church teaches the law and gospel to members. That's part of discipleship. I think Ross said in a sermon that if the grace of God is essentially like the uh, engine that makes the train move, then the law is like the tracks, guiding you to the yeah. appropriate location. I took that from Sinclair Ferguson. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Just make sure everybody knows that. So the, the concept is that at the foundation, if the discipleship is not going on, if you're not teaching people the full counsel of God, law, and gospel, that means how that shalom and love is going to appear is going to be very warped. The law is needed, and the reality is that when you expound and teach the ethical dimensions of the law and its full implications, you'll realize that a lot of Christians will come to that and say, I am not loving my neighbor as I ought to, and they are convicted to do so. Yes. But you don't need to actually say, therefore, we need to make the mission of the church to basically be the transformation. You just need to teach true biblical yeah. discipleship, the full counsel of God yeah. to church members yeah and how how discouraging really would it be if every morning we woke up and i think of ross and me in particular as pastors if we woke up every morning and thought my goal my mission today is to transform the culture when we've never seen that in the history of the world no <laughs> culture has ever been transformed by the gospel now even people give these uh ignorant views of history and they think that back in the 16th century during the days of the reformation everything was great and entire <laughs> cities were transformed and it's just, they just don't know anything about history when they read that uh 18th century the you know the the great awakening um we see in the 1740s you know a town that embraces the great awakening where there are lots of conversions um and then a couple years later you know, kicking Jonathan Edwards out of his pulpit, and there being major problems in the town, and mm -hmm. so you, you just you, you you never see this just complete transformation of culture. I mean, even Nineveh, when Jonah went there, and there was a mass conversion, but then not, but a few years later, uh, we have you know great condemnation being brought by Obadiah, um, and so you know we need to have more biblical language I think when it comes to ministry let's let's say the mission of the church is to make disciples and to plant churches and to be salt and light as we mentioned before it's not to transform cultures part of the problem we mentioned earlier of using this language this uh, overreaching language of transforming culture is that there is a 
tendency because we want to be successful at doing that and we believe that God really only is only at work if there's this kind of massive stuff mm-hmm. going on and mm-hmm. lots of people coming that we that there's a, there's a temptation then to water down the message mm-hmm. to uh, to change the vocabulary uh, of the Christian faith mm-hmm. in order to become more attractive to mm-hmm. unbelievers uh, let's talk about that for a minute well, yeah, there's the danger of making, trying to make the gospel message palatable uh, so that, as you say, it's more attractive to the broader culture and so that you have more uh, easily, you more easily have access into that culture with your message and with your uh, methods and that sort of thing. And the, the problem is that, um, again, it's just, it's not biblical. We, we see Jesus himself uh, warning us that... Um, our way in this world is not easy, and it's not going to be easy, and, and the world is going to hate us. It hated him, and it's going to hate us. And I think our natural tendency is to try to not let that happen. and to, to That if the world hates us, we must be doing something we wrong. We must be doing something wrong. That's right. And now, we don't want to fall prey to the... You know, the thinking that, oh, they're going to hate us anyway, so we can be as offensive as we want right. in, our, in our methods right. yeah. and in, mm-hmm. in our methodology, that sort of thing. But no, but the message itself is offensive. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think, this is my own speculation, I think what can happen, even just without us realizing it, is that we try to be really nice and and really loving to our neighbors and to those that we're sharing the gospel with. And, and, and I say we, I mean we as a Christian, uh, as a church in general, but they still don't like us. Mm-hmm. They, they, they still take great offense at us. Why? Well, because our message is offensive. Yes. And so then we end up wanting yes. to accommodate the message, not, yes. not in an honest way where we really think we're changing what we believe, but, yes. but the way that we present it. So let's get a little personal here. Um, we in the PCA have been having a lot of larger sort of macro discussions on what some of our friends would call needing to change the face of the PCA to be more gracious and welcoming. We hear this a lot from, mm-hmm. from, from pe- people. And on one level, well, of course, we want to be welcoming. We want to have a gracious face. But if, if what that means is we want to water down language and we want to change the mission of the church from being about faithful expository preaching, uh, reformed worship, uh, church discipline, all of the in order in the church and shepherding care, that if those things no longer are the emphases and what the emphases are, kind of redefining the church in more cultural terms. Uh, You know, these days, a lot of people like to talk about community. You know, so the church sort of adopt, even though that, that can't, that is biblical language in one sense, but when you adopt that to the exclusion of all of these other categories that are important for the church, you become like the local, you know, restaurant pub, a uh, hip restaurant pub in downtown Charleston, where they, 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 they're fostering community too, mm-hmm. and bringing people together and so forth. And so, um, Let's talk just for a minute about this this idea within the PCA of, of wanting to be more gracious and welcoming, and you know what what could that lead to? I think there's a at least a simple sense in which you shift from kind of biblical objective sort of categories, and if you adopt kind of the language of today's modern world, it becomes kind of therapeutic in some sense. 
And so some of the basic kind of therapy ways you would deal with some of these issues is to center the discussion on the self, yourself, which means what is your response to God? What is the feeling you get because you've broken God's laws? Um, what is God doing to restore you? So a lot of that language becomes self-focused rather than the older categories would have said there's guilt due to a violation of God's law and transgression God's law. There is a need for atonement because there is real guilt that must be incurred and therefore conversion and regeneration were absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. But if you are trying to at least accommodate the language to fit the perspective that the modern culture thinks in, you're going from objective norms and objective ethics to kind of su- of a subjective yeah. Oprah internal Oprahism sort of feel. Joe Osteen. Yeah. And so what it, it does present is that it's not a Christianity that demands something of you, repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not that message anymore. It's um, trust and obey God because he will restore you back to your uh, original position of something. You, Some of the words there are leaving out some of the important foundational sort of issues that are occurring there. So just by changing the language to accommodate, you basically remove some of the layers of meaning that make the gospel necessary. And so in today's language, if the gospel is at least presented from the perspective of self, then that means it doesn't really demand a response. It's just a really good suggestion to fix your life. And that's a remarkably dangerous position because it means that guilt is no longer really there it's more of a i'm ashamed of what i've become it's more about therapy than it is about the objective realities of a broken relationship with god and Mm -hmm. his holiness and our culpability language matters yeah doesn't it i mean language language matters um you you cannot you cannot um sanitize the Christian faith to be accommodating to the, the, the modern secularist. If you do, you just you've you've removed, uh, you know the the whole concept of sin. You've removed the the, the reality of, of hell from the conversation and God's wrath and judgment. Hence, when you've removed all of that, you've removed the real need for a savior. So Jesus goes from being. Uh, the Son of God who was crucified and nailed to a wooden cross and who bore the wrath of God to the, the, the wonderful prophet who teaches you great things and moral maxims and, and is going to help you to be more centered in life. Mm-hmm. He's a guru who is your therapist rather than your, your crucified savior. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we see evidence of this uh, in the recent brochure. If we can just get a little uh, chippy here for a minute. Uh, I I received a a letter recently from a a PCA church that um, I was copied on it. It was sent to the denomination about our most recent uh, brochure uh, for the PCA. And it's highlighted in this letter, this demonstrating some concern about this, that in 2003, 
There's a section of the brochure that said, We believe that all are sinners and totally unable to save themselves from God's displeasure except by his mercy. And then in the, the 2016 version, uh, the language has been changed to, We believe all people are created by God in his image, yet they seek to live self-centered lives, alienated from God. Hmm. So we move from the vocabulary of sinner to the vocabulary of self-centered. Mm -hmm. Now we do believe that self-centeredness is a fruit of sin and a symptom of sin, but that's not really the ultimate problem. It's mm -hmm. it, The problem is that we are by nature sinners, mm -hmm. right? But that's offensive, mm -hmm. much more offensive than saying, you know, we're all self-centered. Well, yeah, who's, who's gonna disagree <laughs> with that, right? Who is gonna disagree with that? But, but when you start saying, you know, we're all sinners by nature, then, then I guess a little more uh, stings. Yeah, it's a little more in your face. And the reality is that you really can't massage the language of sin to be <laughs> less offensive. You can yeah. just say no. it's not sin, and that means the offense is gone. But once yeah. sin enters the picture, and once we say you or I, we're the actual sinners here. That means at this point, uh, you're going directly at. The person in the face yeah. so there's there's nothing that removes that offense so no matter how uh nice winsome or just charismatic you are once you start with sin and therefore guilt is incurred and yes. the the offense is there and yes. you can't massage that without losing the meaning yes yes it's um it's like the the modern church removing uh worm from hymns uh -huh you know, which are basically the church singing about who they are mm -hmm. in and of themselves. Uh, you know, removing that language mm -hmm. because it might be offensive to people that come into the church. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I, I think it's, it's dangerous. Another, uh, in the same brochure, in 2003, the version of the brochure read, we believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who through his perfect life and sacrificial death atoned for the sins of all who will trust in him alone for salvation. The 2016 version replaces this language which, with this. We believe Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, fully God and fully man. Through his perfect life and sacrificial death, he restored the relationship between God and all who trust his work on their behalf. While the statement itself is true, it is removing the word atonement. Now, why would you remove the word atonement? Atonement assumes guilt, guilt assumes sin, <laughs> and it's objective. And, and atonement, I think in our culture, is seen as barbaric. Uh, it's seen as something sure. that, is, that, is, that belongs to past ages where uh, less developed cultures would sacrifice, you know, blood, have blood sacrifices for things. And it's just, it's seen as very distasteful. Um, and atonement, I think in our wider culture and in the liberal church, is seen uh, the, the biblical atonement is seen as divine child abuse, and it just has a bad, yes. it has a, just has a very bad connotation, and as Gabe says, it's just mm -hmm. offensive uh, to people. And so um, we, we see that the editors have chosen to take this language out of the brochure, which um, I believe is unfortunate and, and uh, is bad judgment, uh, because this is the central, central message of the Bible, of the yes. entire gospel, is the atonement that God provides of his own son for our sins and it, there's no greater love yes. uh, than, than that is shown uh, in the atonement that Christ yes. makes and uh, and we're, we're, we're making since as you said language matters 
We're making a change intentionally uh, that shows that for some reason we don't want this central doctrine of the Christian church to be presented as what uh, people first come in contact with that we believe. Yes, yes. And these foundational categories of the gospel, uh, the sinfulness of mankind, the, the holiness of God, uh, the, the mediation of the Son uh, through the cross, these things can never be assumed. We hear this all the time. Well, well, of course that's what we believe, you know. Of course that's what's behind all of this. But h how long do you um, use euphemisms for these concepts until the concepts themselves have disappeared altogether from your teaching and your ministry? Exactly. And the fact is, not long. And I, I think there's a, well again, I, I don't doubt the sincerity of people who want to have evangelism in, in a, a, a warm church and, and um, a welcoming church, that sort of thing. Um, it, there's, a, there's a misnomer that bringing someone in the doors with language that is softer and, and less offensive, um, that then it's going to be less offensive to them when you actually dig down into the nuts and bolts of what yeah. salvation is and atonement is and an eternal hell and the wrath mm -hmm. of God. That's never going to be palatable. That's never going to not be offensive mm -hmm. to uh, a heart that is rebellious mm -hmm. against the Lord God. Yes, and this gets back to the theology of the Word. Uh, God says in Isaiah 55, My word will not return void. Mm -hmm. That doesn't just mean, as a lot of Christians think, that his word is going to go forth and it's going to save people and it'll never come. That's true. But the word also accomplishes its purpose when it hardens and judges people. Mm -hmm. The word brings life and death. Mm -hmm. The word, when it is faithfully preached, brings salvation and condemnation. Because for those who remain in their sin and remain with their fists raised to God saying, no, I will do it my way. I will not embrace you. I will not submit to you. That word that goes forth is a word of judgment to them, but it's a word of salvation to those who embrace the Savior, right? Mm -hmm. So the word is always accomplishing its purpose. So for us to try to somehow sanitize the message of the gospel to, to make it feel better. It does a disservice to everybody. And, and here's a, another uh, misunderstanding I think that we often have is that if we can make the gospel message of the wrath of God and the guilt of sin less offensive, then, then we're winning people. Um, but really what we're doing is we're minimizing the goodness of the love of God. And what are we winning them to? And what are we, yeah, exactly. What are we winning them to? If we, if we were actually changing the message and they're coming along and they're interested, what are they interested in? Right, and we want to we want to avoid fire and brimstone. You know, we, we, we want to avoid this caricature of fire and brimstone preaching and, and, sure. and harsh uh, mm -hmm. Christianity. Right, <coughs> um, but and and while I agree, certainly agree with that, uh, that you don't want to be someone who is just harsh and angry and, yeah, and those, yeah. of course not. But there there is the reality of God's wrath against sin. Mm -hmm. But you don't have the reality of salvation in Christ and the mercy and love of God for you, an unworthy sinner, without that. Amen. So you lose the wrath, you lose the love. You, yes. you lose the punishment, you, you lose the salvation. Amen. Amen. Well, it's been a, a good conversation. and We hope that you join us again between times.